0: I want to note to everyone on this podcast right now that is why I'm not human because I don't have a grandchildren, a grandchild, and I'm probably not oh going to have one because I'm probably going to die by the age of forty. I just want to uh, say that real quick.
1: Okay, and I need to ask you real quick: Are you a reptilian?
0: I can neither confirm nor deny the answer. Are to you that on a listener? No you guys, calm down. I will not answer this. <laughs> who are you,
2: Donald Rumsfeld? He was the one who was asked that. Yeah,
0: right. he was. Wait. What? what? I mean, really? Do- I never knew about that.
2: Yeah, no, that was like, I'm pretty sure it was Donald Rumsfeld who was asked that question, and he gave that exact response. He's like, I can't I can't confirm that. I'm not going to deny it. That's ridiculous. And then, of course, the, the theory and changed And then he immediately from,
1: started levitating out know, like granite blocks into a pyramid. Is that right? <laughs> All right.
2: Yep. Yeah, and, and the theory changed from now they cannot confirm or deny if, if questioned. Now, reptilians actually cannot say yes or or no to that question. So that's how you know. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Orientalist Express podcast. On this show, we bring together several young scholars to discuss a variety of topics related to the Middle East, American foreign policy, and international relations. As you may know, our goal is to make American foreign policy easy to understand and relevant for people who don't normally follow it. I am Nicholas Hayen, the founder of the Orientalist Express blog and website. Joining us today in the virtual studio are a few of our usual contributors. We have Stephen Howard and Valida Asmatova.
3: Hello, and happy International Women's Day for all our female listeners.
2: Yes, happy International Women's Day. We are also excited to announce yet another new contributor, Matthew Spencer Cosio. Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, um, I'm currently residing here in Glasgow. I just completed my uh, Masters of Letters in Middle East, Caucasus, and Central Asian Security Studies at the University of St. Andrews. And uh, having completed that, I'm uh, just enjoying my time here in Glasgow with uh, my wife and our two boys.
2: Be sure to check out the official Orientalist Express website at orientalistexpress.com to read more about the team. So this week's episode is all about the process of democratization, or to put it another way, how nations turn away from authoritarian styles of government and towards a more representational system. Democracy in one form or another isn't exactly new. Ancient Greece and Rome experimented with rough forms of representational government but this was a far cry from the one voice, one vote system that is the current norm in many parts of the world today. Many factors can influence a nation's turn to democracy, from international demonstrations and revolutions like in the early United States, or external attempts to impose democracy, such as Iraq in the 2000s, or the process of decolonization that occurred throughout Africa and Asia, and even the Middle East. So. What are some of the biggest factors in determining the process of democratization? Who wants to go first?
1: I suppose, um, since I'm new here, baptism under fire, I'll definitely put in my two cents. In a nutshell, uh, one of the basic tenets for building a democracy would be an economic one, which would be a strong and stable middle class. You need that uh, as the basic foundation And that strong middle class needs to have a healthy relationship with government. And it involves a series of interdependencies, such as government relying on this middle class by extracting revenue from it, and then this middle class then demanding proper services or a set of rights or having other forms of expectations from the government itself. So it's this sort of symbiotic relationship, and that's how you see a lot of... uh, a lot of modern democracies, at least in the 20th and 21st century, start to develop.
0: And I'd agree with you that that's very much what a modern democracy is. But when you look at a lot of those other countries that are uh, maybe just transitioning to democracy or what uh, to that effect, they are not going to be able to fulfill all of those specific commitments. And that's why I'm always a little concerned when people talk about democratization of different countries in terms of trying to like get out the vote like one of the biggest problems that happened in Iraq post uh US of ev- 8 invasion was not that we tried to build a country there but we had to, or build a democracy there but we had no idea how to build a democracy there our big goal was hey if we get elections to happen in this country that is a democracy they vote and it is a democracy and i think it very much ignores the problem of democracy, I think the cancer of democracies nowadays, which is the illiberal democracy, and the democracy which is the most people, or the people who have the most power just do what they wantonly want across all spectrums of society, and when it flips to the other party, they then reciprocate with... A similar amount of damage and whatnot. And I know that I, I, one of my previous professors at SDSU told me that liberal democracies didn't exist. You either had democracies or you had authoritarian states. And I don't particularly agree with that. I do think you can have a, de- a democratic state, which is genuinely illiberal, like Turkey, for instance,
1: Hmm. I think that you're describing uh, how democracy transpires in the Middle East in a nutshell. Essentially, it's it's uh, a game of tug of war. What you get, especially in in Arab countries and in a lot of different Islamic countries in the Middle East, is there's this idea that in a democracy, if you win enough votes at the ballot box, you get to basically uh run rampant and be above the law and you know rule with absolute authority the idea you know i mean that kind of sounds like partisan politics in america on steroids that's what you see you know um you'll get a party like perhaps the muslim brotherhood in egypt and they say well we won some amount of majority and now we think that we can just rewrite the constitution because that's how we feel because well majority rules absolutely right and The minority can just go shove it that's the general attitude you see in a lot of uh, countries in the developing world
0: and that's kind of a problem i think in terms of how to avoid that kind of because i i completely agree with you that is definitely a problem in the middle east and a problem with actually many developing democracies in that the they don't have a democratic uh, tradition And especially they do not have a tradition of the peaceful transition of power from one government to a different government. And that is critical when you're talking about democracies, when you're talking about the switch from Barack Obama to um, Trump, uh, Donald Trump. It's those are massively different governments. And you have to transition peacefully between the two. And a lot of these states where they look at it as winner take all politics, those states would have to impose a culture of democratic values on their citizens before they even went to the ballot box. It requires almost a amount of literacy. I wouldn't say, or not literacy, but education. So I wouldn't say so much even a middle class, but amount of education to know that it's not going to just completely topple and it's not a government of the many, for the many, and the few are just well, out Do of you power.
1: think, though... Um... Considering that, do you think that there's a potential for that culture of restraint or that culture of respecting the minority in um, established democracies? Do you think that there's a possibility that that culture could recede?
0: Oh, certainly. Yeah. I think you see it in the United States. I, I mean, what's what's the big Republican motto when de- when they take over from Democrats? Well, the Democrats did it. And then the Democrats take over from Republicans. Well, the Republicans did it. And you have that kind of give and take. And until somebody decides to finally say hey yeah they did it but we're not going to and we're not even going to mention it we're not going to pretend like we are being better than them we are just going to do what we are supposed to do it is a matter of building norms and building a civility in government that laws cannot provide and that for a large part i don't think the structure of government can provide it is a lot of norms and a lot of um intangibles that the country needs to possess."
2: I think what you guys are speaking to also is that democratization is more than just, you know, votes in a ballot box, of course. There's an entire process of legitimizing the selection even before people reach the ballot box. I mean, you could say, you could try to make an argument that, say, Russia is a democratic nation because, you know, people vote and they do legitimately vote for this dictator over and over again. It's just that... Yep. The selection process is incredibly biased, and you could even say the same in uh, elections in Iran. In, in nearly
1: all in nearly all authoritarian regimes, the authoritarian leader is popular with at least fifty one percent of the population. So well,
0: that's what I was yes. going to say. Like if you, Valida, um, I know that you think a lot about Russia, and that's I'm, I'm not sure it is biased per se in Russia. I If the overwhelming majority of Russians approve of Vladimir Putin, is that really even bias?
3: No, not at all. And I think that what Nick said, I totally agree, is that just because one country has um, the votes, elections, uh, doesn't mean that it's illegitimate, you know, even if it has an authoritarian regime. But because it abides by these processes, these rules, it's still considered legitimate for those people in that country. So all those votes, they all count there, even though uh, if, say, America does not recognize those votes, you know.
2: Yeah, and I guess I should clarify, by bias, I essentially just meant that the process is not exactly free and fair from the beginning. I mean, Certainly people do for the majority. Sure. They do support Vladimir Putin. It's just that there isn't really a good avenue for actual opposition.
3: Definitely. I guess kind of... um something to just start it off with democratization i don't think there's a set of unique or identical conditions for the process of democratization if we look at the extension or decline of democracy it can have implications on like social values such as economic growth socio economic equity political stability social justice um, independence i mean we can definitely see a positive relationship between levels of socioeconomic economic development and democratic development and by economic development i'm meaning industrialization urbanization high educational standards at the same time though some scholars believe that democracy is not a necessary attribute of a modern state so not everyone really um agrees with that um some scholars I know when I was studying in grad school pointed out that there are actually 10 factors that promote democratization. So they are pol- political culture, legitimacy, political leadership, social and economic development, civil society, state and society, political institutions, and ethnic conflicts, the military, and lastly, the international institutions. All of these various aspects of um even economic development, like industrialization, urbanization, education, and wealth, they're so closely interrelated that they form this one major factor that correlates with democracy. So, uh,
1: so contributing factors to democracy. Yes. Yeah. So democracy is more of a it's a more of a byproduct. Yeah. Uh, not an end result, guaranteed.
0: And It's not an end result because I, every single one of those factors that you just named, Valida, I think you can attribute those to China. And China just elected a president for life.
1: You, you make a very good point because cause when I think about diverse economies being democratic, I, I, I guess I forget that, you know, technically China could arguably be said to have a very diverse economy. And it does have a middle class that is slowly growing. So the question is, could it become liberalized?
3: Now, when it comes to China, you guys, um, economic development in their case does not necessarily uh, provide a transition to democracy. Because in addition to economic development, when we're talking about China, we have to take into account the role of the elite and the middle class. Um, China has a huge uh, Group of elites that control the political spectrum in their country. So as a result, they're controlling the economic development as well there. And um, uh, by itself, economic development in China will not promote to democratization.
1: Well, it also depends who's paying. You know, if you're if you're an elected official or not an elected official, you're a political official or bureaucrat. You know, who's who's paying your who's paying your salary. So, it, you know, taxation leading to representation is, is an important feature, um, which is why you could have features like a, a diverse economy. But if you are a welfare state or you are a rentier state, uh, you're a country that's not reliant on the taxes of your people. So there's no angry taxpayers you have to worry about, you know, that'll chase you out of town. So... That's an important feature. I, I'm not an expert on China. I'm not sure how the Communist Party works. but uh, So I would, I would love to know from anyone that might be more of a China expert, you know, are they reliant on extracting tax revenue you know, from a growing middle class? I'm going to guess they're probably not. But if they eventually become reliant on that, they might become you know, more, more beholden to those people as their source of revenue.
0: Well, but I think that we're confusing accountability with democ- uh, democracy, and that's... Democracy is a form of accountability, and it's a form of moderate uh, accountability, but you can say that Louis the Fourteenth, the Sun King, was accountable to his citizens because he believed that he, he was going to answer to God, and God was going to say, what did you do for your country? And he would say, I did all I could for my country, and so he was he was actually beholden to his people. And so I, I, I'm a little wary about the connection between those, but I definitely see where you're going for the rentier states in terms of almost all Middle Eastern states with oil are basically rentier states where they don't have to charge taxes to their people. But I think now you're seeing even like with the modernization of Saudi Arabia and Dubai that they have to become a little bit more liberalized to fit in with the modern world but it's not a function of economy. And even though Saudi Arabia is moving away from an oil economy, they're not liberalizing because they're moving away from that oil economy. They're liberalizing because the world they interact with is sees their a lot of their cultural norms as repugnant. I, I, I get confused when we talk about liberalization and democratization because I know they're two
1: very, very different things. So it, it's just like liberalization, you know, oh, we see we see norms of liberalism like, you know, maybe cosmopolitanism or pluralism that you can see in all sorts of things that aren't democratic. Empires have pluralism and uh, diversity and, you know, a general, you know, stride towards coexistence for the sake of stability. So, you know, that looks like democracy, but it's not. It's coexistence and survival. Um, So that might be a a big thing to look at you know countries that look like they're liberalizing they're, maybe they're trying to keep the peace uh and if we're going to talk about liberalization uh this would be a great 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 segue to think about how um hegemonic norms can play a big role in that sort of thing like wh- liberalization is one of those things where the strongest player in the game gets to dictate what it looks like Uh, as opposed to democratization, which can be very tailored and individualized to each country. So, for example, the Washington Consensus is like the global hegemonic liberalization agenda of Washington, D.C. And is that receding when other countries like um, China are becoming more and more empowered uh, to be able to play a bigger role in what liberalization looks like on the globe? Or what about countries like Russia that are trying to become more resurgent? You know, what is their form of liberalization, quote unquote?
0: And I think that bears a lot of um, like uh, saying, especially with the TPP, since the United States pulled out of the TPP, the, the norms that were going to be enforced specifically for the United States have been abandoned in the TPP. And it's it, it's I, I completely agree with you. The person who is the strongest power in the room determines the cultural rules of the game, the norms of the game. And when that person withdraws, it, whether it be voluntarily or necessarily, then somebody else uh, picks up those norms. But then what happens when you get to uh, where we're assuming you were assuming a hegemonic kind of uh, world where I don't think that that's a natural balance. I think the natural balance probably falls somewhere within the um, spheres of influence. How much, however much I hate it, it does fall somewhere within the spheres of influence and, that assumes multiple hegemons around the world in different regions. And in that case, what does liberalization even mean? What is, uh, and I, I do believe liberalization does have a lot to do with democratization too.
2: Well,
1: and, um, you know, it's sometimes it's not necessarily, I mean, it is power, but it's also, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's paradigms and they need to be shifted by challenges to the hegemon. So, um, you know, that's why you have potential hegemons. That's why you have potential regional powers. And right now, the U.S. is still number one. And because of that, most countries still operate on assumptions that have been established back in the 90s, that we should follow economic models that the United States launches towards us, which is why a lot of countries still want to join the WTO. Um, But then, of course, again, you have economic uh, unions, coming out of Russia that try to disrupt that process, which is basically saying, hey, maybe the American economic model for, you know, trade and unions is not the way that you should go. And then you get little countries in Central Asia, you know, that get tugged back and forth. And so that's a bit of a great game right there. And so it is it is good to describe it as a game because little countries get to play games based off what the big countries want. Um, but typically... The general standard these days is most countries want to be in the World Trade Organization. They want that Washington consensus. It looks comfortable. It's easy for them to understand. It's been around for a while. You know, uh, it's, it's not as new as it looks. So people still want to go into that, you know. But again, we have countries like China and Russia. And if they could provide a more appealing alternative, and sometimes it, it comes down to salesmanship, People might step away from that, especially if the United States is not trying to aggressively push the Washington Consensus like they used to, especially if we become more isolationist under people like Trump.
3: Yeah, well, uh, I want to bring out something very interesting. This term I've uh, learned, it's called the semi-democracy, where um, a lot of scholars talk about it. Um, In grad school, I've learned about it, and it's where... Elites are still uh, remain, they still remain influential over their people, but at the same time, liberal participation is still the key of semi-democracies, because elections give these constituents um, kind of an outlet for the elites through which they can declare the support. And in turn, um, the elites and constituents kind of um, support each other in a way, and as a result, the government works through that um, support. Basically, in all cases, if we look at it, both the elites and the masses play an important role in the democratic process. I think that um, even in cases of Russia and China, the elites still need the support from their masses to seem legitimate, and the mass still want their interests represented by the elites. So it's kind of a two-way street, I guess. Do you guys think of that way? Like when you look at China and Russia, do you think of semi-democracy or what's your thoughts?
0: Is it like liberalism is theater?
3: Um, Kind of, kind <laughs> of.
0: <laughs> I think that you could say that to an extent in maybe more polarized countries than China and Russia, because uh, China, you don't. The people don't have a say. That's not even in any way, shape or form a democracy. The people don't have a say on who's in the government, besides if they revolt a lot, the person will get replaced. But that is about it. They don't have a choice in who actually governs. In Russia, I think that as of right now, with Vladimir Putin, I don't think it is a half democracy because you don't really have a different type of choice in terms of what elites you want to vote for. I don't think there is anyone else other than President Putin in there, but I could, I could see that being a model in countries where uh, even non-countries, so say the uh, Kurds. But there are basically two major actions in the Kurdish party that you can support one or support the other. And that would be kind of a uh, – what, what did you call them? A half-democracy?
3: Semi-democracy.
0: It's a semi-democracy. That would be kind of a semi-democracy because you can support one elite's worldview or the other elite's worldview but not really yourself be democratic.
3: Mm-hmm. Nick, what do you think?
0: yeah i'd
2: say that'd be my answer is um i guess i'm kind of with with Stephen and matthew on this one that i wouldn't consider china and russia to be what you would consider semi-democracies um i mean for the reasons that we've already spelled out but i i would definitely consider a nation like iran or potentially even turkey to some degree in the way that it's trending right now that um there are still elections and they are for the most part legitimate i mean there are sure there's a lot of um There's a lot of pre-vetting of different candidates, but to some extent, the population can express their will, even if it is somewhat limited choices, but you can still at least choose between, you know, say like a hard right candidate or a more centrist candidate. And in in China and Russia, I don't see those as options at all.
3: What if people are just comfortable with that regime? What if the people just um, don't want the change, you know?
0: Even I, I wanted to kind of pose the question: If the economic, if economic progress, like what we're talking about and the building of a middle class, the building of an education, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, happens in Turkey, w- would that be any incentive to go from a semi-democracy to a democracy? And and even what Valida was saying, I mean, if Erdogan really has the support he has. It, it, is it a semi-democracy in that sense of he has the support and if the democrats controlled the united states for 20 years in a row we wouldn't call that a semi-democracy because the democrats are in control we would just say hey the democrats won 20 years in a row
2: yeah but i think i think the big difference here and um Felita, i think i get what you were uh, coming out with the example that maybe russia is a semi-democracy where in the sense that, yeah, the majority of people do seem to support Vladimir Putin, but um, I think the big thing that we're missing here is realistic choice. I mean, Stephen, in your example, sure, the Democrats might win over and over again, but it's just as conceivable that the Republicans could win as well in the next time around. Um, So I guess the example that comes to mind is, um, have you guys ever seen the movie Clockwork Orange or read the book? Kind of the core message of that is, um, you know, that this kid... He does a whole bunch of really bad things. And then they condition him to not even be able to stand the thought of doing something bad. They basically don't even give him a choice anymore. And it plays on that idea of, does he really have, like, is he really doing the right thing if he does not even physically have the capability to do the wrong thing? So in the sense, is it really a democracy if you physically don't really have the realistic capability to actually pick a different
3: person? Nick I think um i I think I understand your um comparison with this. I think dem- d- the democratic transition is basically just a process where elites can accept the rules of democratic politics, and in no way I think that Russia is a semi-democracy yet at least right now because we don't have that acceptance in that behavior when behavioral changes occur in the democratic transition we see this change in elites and i think that when the actors come to accept the democratic procedures and institutions as um, first and place them as first then we can see that they're legitimate but As for now, I think that um, elites try to influence formal democratic processes by informal processes such as bargaining or negotiations, and as a result, we don't see progress in that way.
2: So we've covered how states turn towards democracy, but now let's shift focus to how states turn away from it. Uh, One of the most disturbing trends that has accelerated in recent years is the perceived backsliding of democracy in many parts of the world. The theory used to go that once a nation became democratic, it would probably remain that way in this quote-unquote enlightened state forever. Uh, This was of course a short-sighted view of reality. Nations as we've described such as Turkey and even the Philippines have recently undergone very hard transitions to more authoritarian rule. Internally, disaffection with the slowness and inefficiency of representational government is often a major reason that people support authoritarian turns. When confronted with the problems of democratic governance, authoritarian systems can often seem really strong in the face of a national crisis. And of course, authoritarian movements need a strong leader who is willing to break the existing system. So I guess what are some of the biggest factors in determining the process of de-democratization?
0: I think you hit them pretty well just right there honestly. I think that it's uh if you have a national crisis, whether it be economic or political, people tend to turn towards a strong figure. That strong figure usually turns into an authoritarian because god forbid we have someone willing to release the reins of power and unfortunately it's that's every country's going to go through a national crisis whether it be the 2008 recession, whether it be an invasion from a foreign country. And it is a natural weakness of democracy because it's government by the people. And those people are going to do what's natural to people. And what's natural to people is turned to, again, that authoritarian leader. So there's, I, I don't see any bulwark against it. And I think you're seeing a lot of, unfortunately, that happening across the world.
3: So what happened in Philippines... Like, I'm sorry, but I didn't, like, follow what was going on there. Maybe a little backstory?
0: Well, there's just this guy out in the Philippines that's, you know, murdering people with death (laughs) squads. And quite literally shooting women in the crotch because that's apparently the best way. I had no joke. He's a horrible human being. But what do you guys, what do you guys think? What are, I, I said, it's the crises that are causing all of these things what do you guys think
3: civil war military uprising i mean um there's such a thing as guided democratization where they say that the military elite maintains tight control of the democratic transition and i think that this just leads to authoritarian rule in the end because um, military control is just is just gonna lead to civil war where neither the elites or the masses can assert the authority over the territory
2: Yeah, and I think that there is something to be said, too, about um, the perceived inefficiencies and problems of democracy. I mean, we're definitely seeing that in this country where it seems like basically nothing can get done, and that type of frustration, when it's perpetuated long enough, can definitely create the, the necessary conditions for an authoritarian state. And that's what I think is one of the worries about this country. Now, I don't think that we're actually going to head towards an actual authoritarian state, but um, you could see in a country where there is less of a rich tradition of democracy, where people would get sick of exactly what's happening in Washington right now and say, all right, somebody just throw them all out and we'll just listen to whoever is the strong guy who can just get it done because we're sick of all the inefficiencies. And you can see that playing out in Turkey right now.
0: Mm, mm. I'm a little concerned, actually, about the idea of the strong men coming to power via democratic vote and via um I guess the assumption that they are democratic because they are one of a plurality beforehand even though they have obvious authoritarian leadings and I'm thinking about again the brazanis of uh the Kurdish areas right now because I they have very 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 definite authoritarian leadings and everyone looks at the Kurds and go oh they're one of the most democratic places in the Middle east and it's it's only because there are two different parties there and i don't think that two authoritarians make a democracy personally no i I do think that backsliding into um authoritarian uh states from democracies is actually one of the most potent threats to honestly many things the liberal international order the um i I don't I, i can't enumerate the things that it is a threat to because not only is it losing a state to an authoritarian dictatorship, but it also says to all other semi-democratic states or democratic states on the edge, "Hey, look at that country. They they transitioned from one to the other. Why can't we? If if England had a Brexit, why can't we? And if I so, when you look at some of these countries, like I'm trying to think of a, uh, oh my gosh, what is Hungary? Like Hungary." in the European Union, who is just basically becoming an outright fascist dictatorship. I, that sends a message to every other country in the EU, hey, they can do it, and they got away with it, and they're not having to deal with the migrant crisis anymore. Why don't we do that? And Poland looks over and then goes, hold my beer! No,
2: I think that's, that's a very good point, the fact of how both democratization and de-democratization, de-democratization are almost contagious in a Certainly. sense. Certainly. That um, as one seems to be more popular and, and more interesting and more, um, you know, more adaptable to whatever is happening in the, in the world at the moment, that that is the one that people are going to gravitate towards. And so you saw it, that that was the big wave after the Soviet Union collapsed is, hey, now everybody, let's all be democracies because, you know, obviously the previous system didn't work. Well, I worry that now we're seeing the reverse of that, that suddenly people are looking at it and going, well, I guess because democracies didn't really work out for us very well either. Let's try the other thing. And so it's just the pendulum swings back.
0: Well, but I, I think it's also easy to underestimate the impact that a single issue might have on a nation, whether it be immigrants on Hungary, whether it be nationalism on Poland, whether it be nationalism and hating immigrants in England, or whether it be hating the rest of the world in the United States, it's... There are potent issues out there which can get a good amount of any country stirred up for no apparent reason, because let's be honest, people have stuff other to think about other than us boring people who only think about, hey, this is how government works, this is how government should work all day. And that's that's nice that we think about that. But the rest of the country doesn't. And so it is very understandable when they become enthralled with these trends that they haven't fully thought out and that they probably will never fully think out because they don't have the time to do that. And in that sense, how does a large or even a small democracy guard against any sort of issue or single issue that is very potent in their country? Because it's much easier to explain everything with a poster, a billboard in in center square in England saying, immigrants are bad. They're taking your jobs. Which, I mean, let's be honest, that could be in France, that could be in Poland, that could be in Germany, that could be anywhere. And it's a lot harder to say, hey, no, they're not stealing your jobs, look at the facts.
1: Well, um, it's hard to look at it and, and, and see right-wing politics that can be really extreme, that can be really, really reliant on fear-mongering. Um, I don't want to pick on anybody here who has different political viewpoints. I'm just going to assume that amongst ourselves and perhaps amongst our audience— We have to think about people who might be left of the spectrum, right of the spectrum in terms of politics. And just because there's right-wing fear-mongering, does that necessarily mean that that's undemocratic? Uh, Does having an anti-immigrant fervor mean, you know, a country is signed towards being undemocratic? I think that it's important that if we wanted to do this, if we want to be political scientists, you know, we should set up like a something that could be scientific you know can we make a risk matrix and then decide what are these you know you know let's analyze what these risks are and how can we um put them into a threat model and see how these threats to democracy can threaten a democracy and at what point do you call a country undemocratic you know if we see threats to democracy in america it might be for example our our uh, justice system being too harsh, or we might say our electoral system not being terribly accountable. At what point do those uh, threats to our democratic uh, tradition put us outside of the dictionary (laughs) definition of being a democracy?
0: But I think you're coming upon a fundamental problem with political science that I know I've talked about um, before with Valida. That it's not science? No, not not that it's actually not science. (laughs) It's actually the exact opposite. It's that we are trying to become too scientific and we're trying to become technicians. And in becoming technicians of the trade, we cannot explain anything to anyone else. So if an electrician or a plumber or a mechanic comes to your house to fix something and they explain what they're doing, you're probably not going to understand it. You need someone in between the technician with the matrices and the masses who is a actual statesman or a statesperson, I should say, that would be able to go out and explain the technician's work to everyone else. And so I I do think that, yes, you are right, that we should apply the political science portion of this and we should get the technician's data on it. But if it doesn't matter how much data we have and it doesn't matter how adept we might be at being able to solve this, if we can't tell the people, because we're fundamentally democracies, it doesn't matter if we are actually right. It matters if we're right in the minds of the people. And deep. <laughs> when it comes down to it, in a democracy, you change policy by being right in the minds of people, not by being right in, in reality.
2: Boy, that's uh, the most true statement That could be applied to this last election cycle that I could have ever
0: said. Yeah, I'm just, I I don't know, getting kind of a little back to it. And this is, I I actually believe this is a central problem in the democratization problem in that we are all becoming so specialized in the United States because that is the natural tendency of a capitalized economy is to become specialized in one way, one area or the other, because if you're not specialized, you're not going to do anything. But that specialization is making us unable to communicate with anyone else. And in any democracy is making the leaders and the movers unable to communicate or with the specialists who the leaders and the movers are the people who communicate with the people. The specialists aren't. So when there's a fundamental breakdown between the specialists and the uh, leaders and movers, that is the problem of the democracy. That is when you can't explain to your people why they shouldn't vote for a dictator. That is when you t- can't explain to them why ethno-nationalism is a bad thing. It's not in the statistics. It's in the being able to talk about it. And I know that you can go back all the way to uh, the Congress of Vienna, where you had Metternich and Castleroe And Metternich was beautifully able to describe and influence while Castlero was able to beautifully think. And they had a perfect setup there. Uh, Metternich was a little bit more influential and therefore had a little bit less, uh, the um, Congress of Vienna had a little bit less insight built into it. And that's eventually why it collapsed. But they were able to accomplish something then. And that's something we're fundamentally missing. And that's why we're seeing so many backslides. We can't explain why immigrants are bad.
2: Well,
1: political scientists, I mean, I know we we've covered the topic that uh, if you go into poli-sci and you become too specialized, no one understands you well. The basis of political science is strong and good communication skills. I think that's more, for, for people in poli-sci and IR, being able to communicate is more, it's the most important skill you can have.
0: I 100% agree with you, but I don't think that's the way the profession is trending, personally. I remember a foreign policy article coming out. It was a year ago now, and it talked about the most influential international relations uh, thinkers in the world. And it listed them from within the international relations community themselves and then from within policymakers. So they were two different polls, and the only person who made both polls was Joseph Nye. Every other person on each poll was completely different, and they had completely different wings of sway, meaning that the best thinkers in international relations are not, except for Joseph Nye. Shout out to Joseph Nye. Read his book, Soft Power, all about that. But anyways, every other major international relations thinker is not able to get their thoughts and their influence through. No one's going to know who, no, actually, people probably do semi-know who Mearsheimer is. They'll kind of know who Stephen Walt is, but they're not going to raise as much, I guess, political stature as some of these other thinkers out there. I just think, personally, I think this is relevant to our discussion about About democracy. This is fundamentally why I think a lot of these countries are breaking down. This is why the United States is breaking down. This is why Britain's breaking down. I don't think this is why um, Poland is breaking down or why some of these other fascist, more fascist states are breaking down. But I think that the inability of leaders to talk to their own people is a fundamental need in a democracy. And if you don't have that, You don't have a democracy. We have crises, but we also can't explain those crises.
2: And that's it for this episode of the Orientalist Express podcast. I'd like to thank our guests, Stephen, Felita, and Matthew, for their insight and analysis, as well as our listeners and readers of the blog. Be sure to check out our website at orientalistexpress.com, like and share in our Facebook group, or tweet us at orientalistexp. Our podcast is now available on Stitcher and iTunes, or you can subscribe to our RSS feed, which is hosted by Squarespace. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.